Hello, faithful listener. Welcome to the Trigger Warning. Here at Queer Pressure Podcast, we like to give you a heads up for what kind of content you're walking into. This week, we're talking about racism, sexism, sexual assault, domestic abuse, slavery, homophobia, and transphobia. If those are things you don't need to hear right now, no problem. We'll see you next week. For the rest of you, welcome to episode 13, The Color Purple. Hi, everybody. I'm Maddie Gray. And I'm Katherine Johnson, and you're listening to Queer Pressure Podcast. We are so glad you've decided to join us. Queer Pressure Podcast is a critical exploration of queerness in media as an act of radical self-love as queer people when the world says, nay, you shan't be queer, queer is bad, and you say, no, I am me, I am here, I am queer. I may be ugly, but I am here. Oh, thank you. For the foreseeable future, this podcast will be focusing only on Black-centered queer media uh, in alignment with the Black Lives Matter movement. We don't know how long we're going to do this for, but probably forever. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe forever. Maybe. Who knows? I'm not God. Are you sure? (laughs) You can't see my coy smile. Catherine? Yeah. What are you drinking this morning? I'm having a latte. <gasps> oh, fancy. Look at you. Yeah. I got an espresso machine a year ago and took it out and went, this looks difficult and never learned how to use it. And uh, my, but my roommate is a member of the generation Z mm. and looked at it and went, what is this? Finally, this thing that's been sitting here for months. And I was like, oh, it's an espresso machine. She's like, how does it work? And I was like, I don't know. And then she figured it out and showed me. and now i have lattes all day every day well okay so mine is french pressed espresso so it's not exactly not a latte but it's not a latte (laughs) yeah mine is my milk is steamed i put a little caramel in there so what um piece of media are we doing today oh i don't know Catherine. (laughs) we're doing the color purple the color purple did you forget yeah yeah i just watched star wars all week (laughs) then you're gonna be a great conversationalist for this episode the color purple is a 1982 novel by african-american author poet and social activist alice walker and And it was pulitzer yeah yeah. don't worry i'll get there (laughs) how dare you and it was adapted into a musical and a 1985 coming-of-age period drama film directed by Steven Spielberg. Boo! Shame! And starring Woof, Whoopi Goldberg. Woofy. Well, you made me giggle. I can't help it. The book won the 1983 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and the National Book Award for Fiction. You saw that on Facebook, right? What? That thing about J.K. Rowling. Oh my God! I saw yes. Okay, going let's take a small that. detour because that is yeah. wild. I was because I I was literally holding the color purple in my hand when I read that and was like, "Are you serious?" Well, why don't you tell our listeners what we're talking about? Okay. Um. <laughs> there was this post on Facebook we've and Twitter. Been, it's been running around and on Twitter. Twitter. Yeah, uh, we've been trying. We've been keeping up with the J.K. Rowling gossip every episode uh, after disavowing her and somebody had posted that like before jk rowling was published uh female authors were basically unheard of so (laughs) even though i don't even think she said basic i think she said unheard of and um she said you know it's great of us to be like more critical now but the reason why we get to be writers is because of people like J.K. Rowling, and then every and I'm literally holding the color purple by Alice Walker in my hand, <laughs> and everyone comes on and is like, "Are you serious?" Like Maya Angelou, Sylvia Plath, Jane Austen, <laughs> the Bronte Mary sisters. Shelley. Like what? What are you talking about? <laughs> you big dumb stupid Harper <laughs> Lee. What? Yeah. So fucking stupid. 
Did you see that J.K. Rowling uh, signed this petition to end cancel culture? Maybe she shouldn't have gotten canceled. Maybe you shouldn't do things that have consequences. Just shut your fucking mouth. Yeah. Anyways, back to... um, Back to the color purple. We'll give updates every week on J.K. Rowling's <laughs> fall into her own demise. This movie was Spielberg's eighth film as director and starred Danny Glover... Desrita Jackson, Margaret Avery, Oprah Winfrey, and introduced Whoopi Goldberg. It was her first movie. Mm-hmm. And she was really good. It was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, including Best Picture, but it won none. Yeah. Which is quite... Guesses why. Black people. Yeah. Also... <laughs> there were, like, one black person or one white person in it. Also, it um was nominated for 11 awards, but... Uh, Steven Spielberg wasn't nominated for Best Director. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. everyone was like, what a snub. But um, it's fine. He's fine. Yeah, he'll, he'll be, be okay. Fine. Yeah, he'll be fine. It also received four Golden Globe nominations. And the only one it won was Whoopi Goldberg winning Best Actress in a Drama. Mm-hmm. And like you said, Steven Spielberg did not receive any Academy Award nominations for his direction. But he did get the Directors Guild of America Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement. And he got a Golden Globe nomination. So again, he'll be fine. Oh, he's fine. He's directed a thousand movies that people seem to think are good. Um, (laughs) He's fine. I mean, I liked this movie. I didn't know it was by him at the first. It got a 7.8 out of 10 on IMDb, 81% on Rotten Tomatoes, and 78% on Metacritic, in a bunch of letters written to God or exchanged between her and her sister, Nettie, The Color Purple tells the story of a young black girl named Celie Harris in the early 20th century in North Carolina. After being victimized by her father and giving birth to two of his babies, which are taken away from her, Celie is given to a widower, widower with children of his own who continues to victimize her. Starting from nothing, Celie is transformed as she finds her self-worth with the help of her female partner, Suge, and works up the courage to leave her abusive husband with her for Memphis. When her abusive father dies and she finds out that he was not actually her biological father, she returns to North Carolina to inherit his estate, where she ultimately reunites with her sister and her biological children. got distracted because I started looking up who actually did win all of the awards. It was the same year that Out of Africa came out, which won mm-hmm. Best Picture, which is a very good movie, but it's that's interesting because Out of Africa, I thought about it a lot during this movie. We studied that in a class I had in uh, post-colonial film theory that mm. it, even though it's... I've seen it twice for school, actually. We watched it in high school, too. But um, it's really lauded as like this amazing film. I mean, it's Meryl Streep and Robert Redford which are mm-hmm. they're nice to look at uh but it's it celebrates colonialism and it um adds to this idea that the white people who were there were just as so much as a part of africa as africans and it like turns the narrative away from native africans to white people who were colonialists and romanticizes it um mm. and so I was thinking about that movie a lot because this was the first depiction, The Color Purple was the first depiction I saw of people coming on like missionary trips to Africa who were not white saviors. We have yeah. black people coming to on missionary trips to Africa because I think of missionary trips to Africa as a net negative on all accounts. Mm-hmm. So that made me have to think about that. But I think, you know, it kind of shows the dubiousness of those practices in the book for real yeah Yeah. so it was a much more interesting example so for context for everybody Nettie is Celie's younger sister who has been like barred from her presence by her husband and he has been like hiding Nettie's letters to Celie this whole time and through these letters which Suge finds in Mr.'s trunk uh, we discover that Nettie is not only not dead but she has joined a local reverend, his wife, and their two adopted children, who actually belong biologically to Celie, on a trip to Africa for a mission. And they join this fic- 
fictional Olinka tribe in Liberia where they build a church and a school and they like teach the local children. In real time, we see the effects of colonization and apartheid through Nettie's eyes as this road is built directly through the Olinka village. And then the people of the Olinka tribe start to fall ill and die and then have to flee into the jungle to join a different village because their situation is no longer livable. And we can only assume that the other village isn't going to last much longer. They're in Africa for like 15 years. It's not just like... Yeah, for a long time. It's not just like a two-week missionary trip like people do now. Like they go live there for forever. And Mm -hmm. when they leave, the pastor, the reverend... um has this kind of coming to god moment of like i don't think we helped anybody (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it's and that was i really liked that because i felt so weird about this like missionary trip to africa because i just don't believe in that i -hmm. think you're not helping if you volunteer in africa that the money that you spent to get there you could have just given to the local communities they don't need workers they have people there who are unemployed yeah. They need money to be hiring contractors to actually be doing the work, not having a bunch of dumb Christian 16-year-olds coming and posing mm-hmm. with the kids. And apparently, like, it really affects children when they're growing up to have these just constant people coming through their lives. Like, you have these kids come for two weeks and say, hey, oh, I love you, and then, they, then they're gone and you never see them again. And that happens every two weeks for them. Mm. It's a really fucked up practice. I almost went and did it when I was a teenager. Aren't you glad you did? I am. I'm glad my parents said no. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that coming to God moment for the reverend is like especially interesting because of the way Nettie describes the Olinka people in the very beginning of her trip. So in the beginning, Nettie describes the Olinka people and their practices Um, their cultural practices of scarification and there's some genital mutilation and circumcision and the implementation of these really hard strict gender roles she keeps describing them as barbaric not realizing that her sister is actually going through very similar things back home yeah you seeing the back and forth there it's like these people in africa are actually living much more free lives Mm-hmm. Not much longer after that, because obviously their village was destroyed um, right. by the white man. But like for a moment there, it's uh, having Celia at home reading these letters. And it's like she's not even allowed to read her own mail. Yeah. yeah. And then we also see because I wonder if it's partly because they're living these freer, freer lives. Like Nettie's got some emotional baggage around the people of Africa. So in her letters, she describe or she repeatedly blames the people of Africa for selling their ancestors to slave traders. And she's like processing that grief about slavery and like the resulting systematic racism. And she feels like she needs an apology from Africa, which like she translates as from the Olinka people. Mm-hmm. In order to feel like she belongs anywhere. And that, like this is generational trauma. And she doesn't have that word for it, but that's what she's describing. And for many Black Americans today, that is still a thing. Anyways, we never did what we're supposed to do at the beginning. I know, because we got caught up. Uh, What's problematic? What's problematic, Catherine? The depiction of men. Interesting. Go on. Alice Walker faced a huge amount of backlash about how she portrayed Black men in the book. And Mm, all I could ever find anywhere was everyone talking about this huge amount of backlash where she, it was like a changing moment in her life, how much backlash she got. Mm. She wrote an entire book about it after this, um, about being treated that way. But all I could find in my research was people talking about the criticism, not the actual criticism. Right. Because I I mean, okay, I get where some critics are probably coming from when it comes to like the portrayal of black men specifically mm-hmm. as like because in this book they are bad they're all all, of all the, the men, men around evil. her are bad they're all evil yeah but i and don't violent think that, yeah but i don't think that that violence is unique to black i mean you know because like we don't really see any white men in this yeah all we see is i think the mayor 
Yeah, we see the mayor once. And he does slap Sophia, so... He gets... Yeah, yeah so he's... So there's violence there, yeah. too. I don't think that, like, what she's trying to say with this book was that black men are uniquely violent. I think it's men, are violent. period, are violent. Yeah, but it almost isn't... It almost can't be explained away by good intention because of right. how ingrained the... You know, the war between like white women and black men is and and not black men towards white women the war from white women on black men um yes. that this just goes back our entire history on this continent of since white people got here that white women see themselves as you know pure and need to be protected and for some reason it's black men especially that white women feel like they're being you know put in danger by which is why there's such a viral trend right now of karen's you know the Mm -hmm. central park karen who's gonna call call the police and tell her a black man is threatening her life actually an interesting because we were talking about my like colonial film class one of the other movies we watched in that class the letter was very much about that but i believe it was in vietnam Mm. um but it was the same thing where the it was greta garbo betty davis it was betty davis uh, was having an affair with a Vietnamese man and he like broke up with her and she shot him but to get away with it she just said that he was trying to molest her and everyone was like oh my god you know and she did the whole like fainting and everyone's like oh precious oh you're oh, oh precious you know? white woman yeah. we must protect you yeah and you know it's uh to kill a mockingbird I think is all of our first time we see that in like a book in high school apart Mm -hmm. from just seeing it in our own lives but um so then the argument there would be like obviously white people are gonna take this as look how evil these black men are right i get that also but i also think we have to be i think we have to leave room for you know black women's voices are heard the least Mm -hmm. in our society i think yeah and their experiences are the most often brushed aside. Yeah. So to and especially brush aside Alice Walker's. Yeah. Yeah. So like I, I can absolutely see because there's no other white men to like juxtapose this type of violence in this book to that white people would be like, this is a story about how violent black men are. But I think also it's important that like black women's experience is just as valid. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess I'm just saying that, like, I can, I would not, if a black man was telling me this, I wouldn't argue with mm-hmm. them. No, yeah. absolutely not. But, but also. Because, like, that is a valid criti- yeah. criticism. I'm not saying that it's not. I'm just saying that we also have to take into account that this is coming from a black woman mm-hmm. who has experience. The most uh, underrepresented people in the country. Black yeah. women. Um, another part of it, the other side of the criticism is just that it's a man-hating book that I don't give a fuck about. Like, no, I I 100% disagree with that. Given the time period, I'm not willing to say that like this is a an exaggeration of male violence. I don't even care about the time period. I don't give a fuck. Like, (laughs) I don't think that there are. It's possible to be like a man-hating. <laughs> who like men or women hating all the time so it, does, it doesn't matter all the doesn't time. fucking matter and like yeah this is a book about a woman who's brutalized by men and is a lesbian like <laughs> you're not allowed to just say like she hates a man be- she hates men because she's a lesbian no she hates men because she's been brutalized by yeah. men um something i was reading that the book is not so much about look at all these awful men it's more no. about look at everyone being victimized by patriarchy because yes. the men that's it are the way they are because of their fathers and it shows this generational line of um the oldest who we don't see very much is uh Seely, the main character's father-in-law and he did not let his son marry the woman he wanted to and trained him to be domineering and like you need to be in charge of your woman and like you you dumb boy and and that is what turned Albert uh, Celie's husband into the man he was where he just mm-hmm. used his wife and was horrible awful man then he tries to espouse the th- same things unto his son and his son's a better person his son marries for love mm-hmm. and but he marries a very strong-willed woman 
who will hit back if you try to touch her. And mm-hmm. uh, his dad, instead of just being like, oh, well, that's who you married, says, like, you need to beat her. You need to do this. You need to, like, you're not a man. You need to make her submit. And because of that, his wife leaves him. And it so it's all these men victimizing themselves, making their lives Absolutely. worse. And making the lives of the people around them worse because of patriarchal relations and i think the moment yeah that generational part patriarchy yeah. is not subtle in this book no at all no 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 it's yeah um and then a really good example of it is towards the end of the book when Celie does leave mister mm-hmm. and um he can't live on his own at all because <laughs> she does so much work <laughs> and uh we hear that harpo his son had come and was just like holding his dad in bed they were just like in bed together and he was just like holding his dad and it's after that that we see a change in mister which is something you did not expect ever happening and they and he ends up being friends with seely by the end of it seely and mister end up being very good friends they sit on the porch and drink lemonade and talk so I don't think that you could really legitimately say that this book is a man-hating book because of the change that happens in Mr. Once his wife leaves him, Albert, who is called like Mr. Blank throughout the book, she never gives him a last name. He goes through a fundamental change. She, as she leaves, says, I curse you. Everything that you ever put on me is now on you. Everything you touch is going to be destroyed until you do right by me. And it, I don't know that it's actually magic because as a witch, I do believe in magic. But like, it's the force. That had to have forced this man to think about everything he'd done. And change himself. And, like, we see so much character development from the time that Celie leaves to the time that she returns. And they start formulating a friendship where they sit out on the porch and drink lemonade and talk about things. Mm -hmm. So how can you possibly say that this is a man-hating book when we see a man change? Learn and be better. All right. Do you want to talk about the queerness in this movie now? No. Okay, well... I will. So first things first, the book is a lot queerer than the movie, just like uh, with our episode on Fried Green Tomatoes, where the book was much more queer. Oh, this is so similar to Fried Green Tomatoes. Oh, yeah. So many weird striking similarities to Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe. Number one, it's a book written in the 80s about the 30s. Mm-hmm. It, about rural Georgia. Lesbians Well, this is Georgia. North Carolina, but same thing. No, it's Georgia in the book. They filmed it in North Carolina. It? Yeah. Oh, right, But it takes right, place right. in Georgia. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And rural Georgia, about lesbians. Mm-hmm. Also, they mention honey. That's it. <laughs> there you go. You're reaching at straws on that one, but okay. Well, they do. They do. They have honey on their cornbread. No, she. there's a part in the movie where she's like, like, if... Miss Sugar's honey, I'm a bee, and I follow her around oh, like a bee. Right. And okay. I was like, you're a bee, Chama, Iggy Thread, good. <laughs> also, the movies the movies were directed by white dudes. That is also true. Hey, look at that. See, I could write a whole essay if I tried. So this is a story, really. I mean, it's a story about a lot of things. But on the queer side of it, it's a story about surviving as a queer person under... The worst of circumstances, really. So Celie is not only a woman, but she's a black woman. And not only is she a black woman, but she's a lesbian black woman in the South from like 1910 to 1930. So every aspect of her identity is considered lesser than by everyone in the world she lives in. And as a result, she just keeps getting beaten down and then literally beaten down by her husband. But something that was mentioned in fried green tomatoes that like you know they never call themselves lesbians at that time in that setting it wasn't really a word they used so yeah um she wouldn't have identified as a lesbian the way that we think of people identifying as lesbians she just was yeah and she's more explicit about it than they were in fried green tomatoes oh yeah where she basically she implies that she's never enjoyed sex with men and that she really enjoys sex with Shug. 
Yeah, and they do have sex. It's not like explained in the it's, book. It's, it's not a way sex. More explicit. Yeah. It's not a sex scene, but they like have they have sex in the book where uh, mm-hmm. we don't. I don't think we even see them like kiss in frag green tomatoes. We do see them kiss in the movie. Oh, sorry. Yeah, in the movie about. I was so surprised because this was the first time. The last couple ones we've done, I've watched the movie first, then read the book, which mm-hmm. I wish I'd done because I always don't like the movie as much after reading the book. And yeah, and so I didn't like the movie very much, where the first time I watched Fry Green Tomatoes, I liked the movie. But I was ready. I was seeing that, you know, like they took out all the gay and stuff. And I was ready for what I'd seen happen in Fry Green Tomatoes, where they took out any mentions of it. And mm-hmm. added in a scene where the two girls throw a bunch of food at each other. Mm-hmm. And the director, the white director, said that was a euphemism for them having sex. Right. Was they threw a bunch of, like, pie filling at each other. And I was like, that's stupid. So I was ready for that. That's real stupid. I was ready for something like that. And then they actually kissed. And I was like, that's cool. This might be the first two black women kissing on film I would think oh maybe Maybe. I I feel like I would have seen someone write that somewhere but like I can't imagine that was happening very often before this movie still doesn't happen very often um after they kiss they're like still kissing and the camera like goes to the chandelier and it's like it's implying they just boned they probably just boned don't be so hard on yourself Steven Spielberg he says it's one of his like biggest regrets in his career is not doing justice to the lesbian story and i was like you did way better than fried green tomatoes bud but you could have done better than but that you could have done better you also could have just not had steven spielberg do it but <laughs> yeah maybe we could have had a you know black, black lesbian female director. but it was quincy jones was the producer on this who is a black man and he wanted steven spielberg and well yeah i guess that's that yeah and he like said hey steve you want to direct the color purple and he went why would i do that <laughs> he's like i don't you're like are you crazy <laughs> like i don't know anything about the south or what it's like to be a black woman <laughs> and quincy jones said um well you didn't know anything about being an alien and you made et and Steven Spielberg, the correct response would have been, that's not the same thing, Quincy Jones. But instead, Steven Spielberg went, you're right. (laughs) Send the script over. So throughout the book and the movie, actually, Seeley is like completely devoid of having any Mm self-esteem until she meets this nightclub singer, Suge Suge Avery. Avery. And she feels like this immediate attraction. So Suge is an unconventional woman of the time. Uh, she sleeps around, including with Celie's husband. Uh, she's knowledgeable about pleasure, which is not a thing that a lot of women at this time would have been particularly knowledgeable about. She drinks, she sings in bars, she has abandoned her children who now live with her parents. And she, despite all of these societal pressures telling her that she is also less than, just like Celie, she maintains her confidence, matching and often like surpassing the men around her. And she's introduced kind of as this villain. So the very first time we see Suge Avery, she's very ill. Albert has brought her home to his house to be cared for. And she looks up and she sees Celie and she goes, damn, you sure are ugly. You sure is ugly. But... Suge really ends up being the catalyst for every single positive change that happens in Celie's life. She teaches Celie about sensuality. She awakens her sexuality. She protects her from the mister's abuse. Mm -hmm. And she finds Nettie's letters. Yeah. And then she also whisks Celie away from mister's house and encourages her to open up her own business. And helps her in every way she can to make her an entrepreneur. Um, the my favorite scene in the movie, which doesn't quite happen the same way in the book, but I thought was a really mm-hmm. good choice for the movie. They're at this gin joint, juice joint. I forget. Yeah, yeah, and um, uh, Harpo's joint. Yeah, and Suge is singing. I'll go a little further back. They're all at Harpo opens a bar basically, and 
no one wants to come so they have suge sing there while she's still like getting better and a bunch of people start showing up Seely really wants to go and of course mister's like no why would my wife come my wife is annoying and suge's like shut the fuck up albert of course Seely's coming she's my best friend and so <laughs> Seely comes but you know she doesn't have a lot of like nice clothes or anything and like the other women are making fun of her and she's just sad and it's it makes me feel so bad for her but then Suge who everyone in the room is obsessed with there's this part where like mm-hmm. one of the men is like baby I just want to drink your bath water and like it just goes around as <laughs> like all the men are saying all this stuff about Suge but she says this next song is for Miss Seely because she helped scratch it out of my head when I was still sick and in the in the book, it was just like a song about like a man who'd done her wrong. But for the movie to kind of try and convey their intimacy more quickly, they turned it into a song that's, I guess, a Broadway standard now is what Wikipedia told me, where she's just obviously singing to like another girl. It could be interpreted as just friends, but it is two women singing about how devoted they are to each other. And, like, the room splits and she sings to Celie and Celie's smiling. And it's just the best fucking thing that's ever happened in the whole world. Because she's just so, like, dowdy and no one thinks she's a real person. And then the most effervescent person in the room is singing a song straight to her. It's, like, every 12-year-old girl's dream. Mm-hmm. Another thing I really love about Shug is she never asks anything from Celie in return for all of this. Yeah. Except for her affection and her companionship. That's all she ever wants from her. Yeah. This really paints a picture of like the first ever loving romantic relationships Celie's ever had. And it's set really nicely in juxtaposition to Celie's loving relationship with her sister Nettie, who for the most of the story she thinks has died. Mm-hmm. So she thinks she's alone. A motto that keeps popping up, and we mentioned it very briefly in the very beginning of the episode, is Celie keeps coming back to like the notion, I'm here, mm-hmm. I'm alive. And we all know the chant, we're here, we're queer, get used to it, we like drink beer. <laughs> Stuff like that. <laughs> you did it wrong. <laughs> we like drink beer. <laughs> you all you all know the chant, right? Like, we're queer, we'll get used to it, we, we have beer. You know that chant. We beer and cheer and freer? Is that a word? (laughs) It's that there's an episode of Will and Grace where they say, we're here, we're queer, get us a light beer. But that's based off of we're here, we're queer, get used to it, right? But at this time in history, queer people really couldn't be that bold without risking jail time and oftentimes death. So this, for me, feels like a really interesting stepping stone toward that goal of we're here, we're queer. Because Celie has to overcome this entire lifetime worth of abuse just for being a poor black lesbian lady born at this time. And she has to overcome that in order to believe herself worthy of the space that she takes up. What's nice is like in the process, she discovers her identity. She discovers her sexuality. But still, it's never something she explicitly talks about except for with her le- with in her letters to God. Yeah. I would say this doesn't have a lot of the trappings of typical queer fiction because it's not, like, while it's present, it's not a huge part of why her life is the way it is. Mm-mm. No one ever comes after her like, you're having sex with a woman? What? You know, like, that's just kind of something that's mm-hmm. happening. And it's not, she doesn't have like a coming to terms with her sexuality or anything. It just kind of is what it is. Yeah. Um, It's much more about gender and race. Mm-hmm. And poverty. And the the racial part of it is kind of implicit because you don't see the lives of many white people. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know that the reason why things are most of the way they are is because of how black people are treated in society. But we do have a whole plot line where one character is forced into slavery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's Oprah Winfrey's character. And that shit 
still happens. Prison labor is slavery. Yeah, it's legal. Like, it, it, we're not saying that as, like, it's slavery. Like, it's literally slavery. It's no, in no, the no, Constitution it's... that um, mm-hmm. you can't have a slave unless they are in jail. So once you're in jail, you can be forced to work for either free or, you know, 17 cents a day, something like that. And then you add that to a system that systematically incarcerates brown and black men and you have slavery legalized slavery did you like the book i really liked the The book's really good yeah so i'm dyslexic so i have a really hard time like reading normally when i read it's an audiobook that i listen to while i clean or sometimes it helps me to read along with an audiobook there is no good audiobook or access to an audiobook for this book. That's odd. So I actually had to physically read it. How dare. How dare. And like it was daunting because on whatever app I had it was gonna be like 327 pages or something like that. And I was like oh god this is gonna be so hard. I'm never gonna finish this book. But the second I started reading it I couldn't put it down. Yeah. (laughs) So Matt and I, my roommate and I started watching Clone Wars and Whenever there was just a battle sequence, I would just, like, pull up my app and read. <laughs> and then as soon as the battle sequence was over, I'd just, like, put it down. Speaking of Clone Wars. Um, yes? Star Wars. So, <laughs> last night I was watching it with my friends, and it was when Celie's leaving, and she's like, fuck you, Albert, I'm leaving. And she puts her hand out at one point, and my friends mm-hmm. are like, she's using the Force. And I was like, no, really, though, she kind of is, because... <laughs> Alice Walker is, so the the writer of this book, um, was a person who uh, coined the term womanism, which is Mm. like a different, it's not feminism. It's a response to feminism being too, you know, Eurocentric and Mm -hmm. um, white feminists ruining everything. And so womanism is specifically centered around the lives of like black women. Yeah, so she's the person who coined the term, and obviously there's a lot more people who've done work on it since then. Oh, am I going to say this word right? I, I read something that womanism is very theologian. That's right. Yeah, and you see that in this book a lot because she starts off writing all these letters to God, and then it kind of changes throughout, and she talks about this change from to into like spirituality that God is not some white man. There's a really famous line in the book, something about like when I learned God was a white man, I lost interest. But they all talk a lot about how God is not some some white dude somewhere. God is in everything. And that's where we get the title of the book because Suge says like, I don't know how someone can walk past a field and see the color purple and not, you know, stop and be amazed by it but they were saying that that is god that god is in everything and i went that's that's called the force sorry <laughs> but that has a name and it's the force so <laughs> i mean whatever you call it when i was watching the mo- so i didn't really necessarily ta- have this take when i was reading it but when Whoopi goldberg held out her hand like she was using the force on him i went black girl magic oh. it, why <laughs> is it wielding the force maybe it's the same thing oh <gasps> Maybe the next Star Wars should be a black girl. It absolutely, if there is a next Star Wars, it absolutely should be. There will be a next Star Wars. There will always be another Star War. I think Rosario Dawson might play Ahsoka in something. Did I see yeah, that? No, yeah, that's, yeah, I also heard that. Yeah, I'm super down for it. Really like Rosario Dawson. But um, is Rosario Dawson black or is she Hispanic? She's Latina. She's Latina. That is also kind of a thing unto itself that in black women and women of color often play characters that like you can't see their skin color like um yeah what is her name who she's in star trek but she's in uh, guardians of the galaxy and she's green and she's in Mm -hmm. it's the same actress as in uh the avatar movie and she's blue um Mm -hmm. lapita nyong'o in star wars like one of the only black people is playing a cgi character jar jar binks was played by a black, a black man. man. Yeah. yeah. So that happens a lot. So it, as much as it's great that they should not have a white woman playing Ahsoka, they should also have a person of color that you got to see their skin color. Are they going to paint her orange or just do the hair? Maybe they'll... Well, she's 
take criticisms. Well, okay. Well, there's biology. In this. Oh, you're going to go into the biology of Ahsoka's race? There's verisimilitude to Gruta. See, this is like incorrect because when you, when I Googled what race is Ahsoka, it pulled up her picture right next to um, Ayla Sakura, who is a Twi'lek, and they are completely different. <laughs> Catherine, <laughs> this is not a Star Wars podcast either. I'm just saying within the world of Star Wars that's racist. <laughs> but all right, I'll give you that. But one. Ahsoka's skin is uh red. Did you call it a headdress earlier or hair? What'd you call it? I said hair. It's not hair. What is it? They're big tendrils. Tendril hair. <laughs> They're not it's not hair, it's flesh. <laughs> It's flesh and like their brain is in it. Ew. It's not gross. <laughs> I just wanted to see what your response was. It's would not be. gross. Like the men have big ones and it shows that they're like strong in battle. <laughs> Sorry. Back to the color purple. <laughs> I was about to be like, it's important to <laughs> to um <laughs> respect people's culture and then i'm like these people don't exist this is fictional culture <laughs> if only i could get no, I this i'm laughing because it's funny if i could get this up in arms i do get this up in arms maybe if we can make <laughs> maybe if we can make white boys get up in arms about the difference between twi'leks and tagruta then we can say like now see how that <laughs> applies to the real yeah. world <laughs> thanks star wars I think they should make the movie again. And I think they need to hire a black lesbian director to do it. Yeah, because um, now having watched a couple movies that were made by black lesbians, it was so jarring to come into this. And it's like, why do they let white men do anything? That's something I've been thinking about a lot now, especially after watching Pariah and The Watermelon Woman, which are both directed by black women, that like having gone to school for film and been interested in film my whole life and when you google like the greatest directors of all time and it's just you know this very long list of white men and you'll get like a couple people of color in there um and you got like Catherine Bigelow and maybe like Sofia Coppola but then you get like 30 white dudes I remember arguing with people about it my whole life And they were saying, well, like, obviously white men are just better at it, which sounds really Mm. bizarre now, right? That it's, like, obviously not. But, no, I legitimately believed that growing up. Like, when I was learning about my film education, like, the concept that, like, well, white men are just better at it, obviously. (laughs) But, like... Right. And it just, like, that's just a lack of education. It's, like, an ignorance. It's, you know, as... A white person you don't really see the systemic things that keep black creators down and don't push them up the same way that somebody like you know steven spielberg has been boosted yeah and while like i really love schindler's list i think it's a really fantastic movie but also it's a movie about jewish people made by a jewish man like Right. So that's a little different. I didn't think Color Purple was that great of a movie. I thought that the performances were really good. I thought the yeah. acting was fantastic. The acting was great. I thought the rest of the movie was like, okay. I don't... Yeah, it was fine. after Because I had also read the book before I saw it. And I had never seen The Color Purple yeah. before. I didn't actually even know what it was about when I picked up the book to read it. I just knew it was about like the South and that there were queer themes in it. Yeah, same. And that it was black women. My dad, when I was growing up, like, I I was always fascinated by the concept of the favorite because, like, I never had a favorite thing because favorite to me was always so temporary. Like, today my favorite food is pizza. But I asked my my dad what his... is pizza. (laughs) But I asked my dad what his favorite movie was. He said the color purple. And he, he said the color purple. That's so weird. And I was like, what? Like, I didn't even know what it was about. Like, honestly, when I picked it up, I expected something with, like, a Roots-type feel to yeah. it. Yeah. It wasn't that. No, because this is a couple of generations after slavery. I think they said that, like, their grandparents were slaves. Surprised to watch this movie and be like, this was my dad's favorite movie at one time? That's so weird. Because your dad's right? so not into Black Lives Matter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there is 
obviously, like, white people love movies about, like, slavery and stuff like that, especially when there's a white savior. There's no white savior in this movie, which is maybe why it didn't win the Academy Award, as opposed to something like 12 Years a Slave, where in the end it was, I think, Brad Pitt who saves him. Uh, Chai Wattel Ejiofor, I think, was the main actor in the... But it's like, we love seeing something like that where Michael Fassbender's character, you know, was like the evil plantation owner. and mm-hmm. But they're saved ultimately by a good white person. And then we see that and we can go look how far we've come, which we haven't. It's just... We really haven't. That's moved to a place where we can't see it anymore. It's mm-hmm. moved to a place that makes it so our Starbucks drinks are affordable. You know, like Star- Starbucks mm-hmm. uses slave labor. We use slave labor to create most of the just stuff we use. It's it's not very different than the South. We just pretend it is. And like nobody educates right. themselves about it. Well, it's easy not to. It's easy to be like, that's so far removed from me that I don't have to know about yeah. it. Which is the racism of our era. Yep. And... So that's interesting that your dad would like something like the color purple because seeing something like that would make a white person feel better about themselves, you know, because it just tells them like, no, I'm not racist because this is not the stuff I do to black people. Apart from that, it's a very kind of some of the criticism is that it's like overly sentimental, but I say fuck it. I like that. <laughs> yeah, I do too. I don't yeah. mind that at all. But I do think it lost some of the the best part of the book. Alice Walker, when she first saw the movie, didn't like it. And then she watched it in a crowd and came around. But she said the part she was really bummed out about is that we don't have the whole kind of final act falls apart. It's yeah, just it not totally really there. Does. Yeah, um, you never get to see... Shug bring Seely up to Memphis and live in this like beautiful mansion mm-hmm. and she said that's what she really wanted to see was these women like living in this house together the women are the one making the money and they're the one that designed a house and she wanted to see what it would look like if it was just a woman's house you know yeah like there's no part of it that's serving a man like what would they do to create the house and live you know I, I wanted to see her you know make her pants and start her mm-hmm business and there's supposed to be this great scene where she goes back to visit Harpo and she's like dressed to the nines and like people don't recognize her and we don't get any of that we get this other weird plot line that I don't remember being in the book which one Shug's dad oh yeah that wasn't in the like she mentioned that her she uh, now I'm confabulating I think when she was like she talks about her dad in the book a lot Uh but she never goes and sees him yeah there's this whole like added plot line of Suge's dad as a preacher and that ends up kind of being the like ending apart from Nettie coming back like that's the that's the right big. that's like the the ending of well it's like the beginning of the third act is like look we're starting to resolve things yeah I did like getting to see like <laughs> actually see Seely hugging her kids and stuff in the movie that was fun oh yeah I cried like a stupid baby yeah. because like in the book you do get like really overcome but because it's an epistolary novel and it's written like letters from her perspective it mm-hmm. is a little detached in that way yeah you don't get like prose describing things in kind of a swelling way but um it's i mean it's written really wonderfully mm-hmm. so i don't think that that's something negative about the book but it, it was fun a couple to have those couple of things to get to see them but overall i think the book did a much better job of telling the story yeah, they were thrown in plot lines that weren't actually there. They didn't actually, in a satisfying way, resolve the plot lines that were there. I watched a video essay, I think it was from The Take, that was talking about tropes for black women. It started, you know, with the mammy, which was what we were talking about last week, and mm-hmm. uh, talked about the Jezebel, which was a trope of a black woman who was just, like, mm-hmm. sexually insatiable. Someone like Shug Avery. And it said that our current trope is the strong black woman someone like you see in like hidden figures or the help mm-hmm. or yeah. or what's we were talking about her earlier I never looked up her name who was in uh zoe saldana 
Like, oh, everything right, right. Zoe Saldana is in, she's, like, the strong black woman, you know? Yeah. Like, I guess she has, like, personality, because there's been several Guardians. She's been in many movies as Gamora, but mm-hmm. her primary trait as all these women is that she's, like, a strong woman, like, an unbreakable right. strong black woman. As much as it's, like, good, Celie is a representation of this. They used Celie in the color purple as a representation of, like, the strong uh, black woman who can't be taken down. But, like, as much as that's, like, you know, it's nice to have a positive portrayal, it also gets white people to think that there's something, like, superhuman about black women and that they can take Mm. more and nothing will phase them because they are these, like, goddesses that are strong and can take anything, which is great, but also they're people. We need to get to... The kind of black women that we're seeing their faults and we're seeing the complexities that you see with white characters they were mm-hmm. portraying it against someone like like fleabag yeah stop making caricatures out of black people yeah where we're finally getting there with like white women where you're starting to get these complex characters anti-heroes that kind of thing mm-hmm. but we need to get that for like that's that's first wave feminism we don't fuck with that shit like <laughs> no it's not a, it's not enough that it's just white women that are getting those characters it needs to be everybody I know this is completely unrelated, but it is, you know, once in a while we throw in some, you know, queer current events. Did you hear about Halle Berry Mm -hmm. and how she was going to be playing a trans man? Yeah. Did you read her? So she backed out of the role. She decided after the backlash, she was like, I'm I'm not going to do this role. Um, Did you read her apology? I did not. Okay, I'm going to read you her apology and I want you to I want to hear what your response to it okay. is. And also I want to mention that like within a day of me finding out she was going to be a trans man, that was like canceled. So good work internet. Good work internet and honestly, I mean she might not have known any better, but even even though that's not an excuse, like as soon as she got that backlash, she stepped down, which Yeah. Which, you know, you know ScarJo doesn't do. Yeah, we spent a very long time trying to get Scarlett Johansson to step down, and she did not. So they made the fucking movie. Anyways, all right, let's hear it. Okay, it's not very long. I'll read it to you, and you tell me what you think about it. Gotcha. Over the weekend, I had the opportunity to discuss my consideration of an upcoming role as a transgender man, and I'd like to apologize for those remarks. As a cisgender woman... I now understand that I should not have been considered for this role and that the transgender community should undeniably have the opportunity to tell their own stories. I am grateful for the guidance and critical conversation over the past few days, and I will continue to listen, educate, and learn from this mistake. I vow to be an ally in using my voice to promote better representation on screen, both in front and behind the camera. I think that was good. I do too, but there's also like an element to it because like, I don't know, the article that was floating around about her talking about this transgender character, like she continually misgendered this character. Like, I don't know that she quite totally understands, but I do appreciate that she's willing to listen and learn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think. I give your apology an 85%. Yeah, because I do think there are many flaws to cancel culture that there needs to be a difference in how someone like Harvey Weinstein is treated and someone like Halle Berry is treated like they're not the same crime but we treat everyone kind of the same where it's like once you're canceled you're canceled or there does need to be a level of like letting people apologize and do good and give them an opportunity to do better yes not everybody obviously well i think there's also a difference between saying you're sorry and like going on to act going on to like do things that make up for your mistake like we're not at a point yet that we know whether or not Halle berry's done that yeah but this just happened but but she has stepped down from the role which is a big action which is a big and the most immediate thing she could have done to show her apology because like very easily because she could have been like i'm you know learning and i'm gonna promote but like could have still just done the role like people do that like tilda swinton did that with uh, dr strange she was like i'm learning about racial inequality but i'm still gonna play this this ancient chinese man yeah like exactly i want to give her the benefit of the doubt but if she does something stupid then yeah cancel jk rowling also cancel well jk rowling is done (laughs) she hasn't even apologized she's digging herself in deeper yeah 
I mean, if she had a total coming to God and was like, I was wrong, I'm giving my fortune to trans youth, then it'd be like, great. Right. <laughs> Honestly, know? like, I'd, so here's the thing. I don't think that, I think that there are problems with cancel culture, but I don't think that this whole facing consequences for your actions is, is the a wrong bad part. thing. No, 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 no. I just think that like we can't, if someone does one small thing and it's they're over forever. I don't like that. Right. But I don't think that there's anything wrong with shut the fuck up, JK Rowling. We're going to cancel you until you correct your behavior. Right. It's that's like, I don't think yeah. that any of these people necessarily like Harvey Weinstein, probably irredeemable. I, I don't want to hear his name anymore like yeah. I'm, I'm just done with it but like if jk rowling did listen to trans people and change her mind like that's a thing that we could we can talk about there's <laughs> yeah because it's not just the trans thing so like there's some inherent racism in the books and a lot of homophobia in the books so it would take mm-hmm. her saying like this is a 500 million dollar check <laughs> for some cause right. like and, it would take and like all the royalties for harry potter here coming forward. it would take like major reparations to be like you get it yes but if she well, did because that her platform's enormous yeah she could do a lot of good she could and that's why i think that's why this particular issue keeps standing out for me is because like i don't know she did a lot of good bringing the community together that community is now like reeling because mm-hmm. the person who brought us all together are like is turns out to be somebody quite hateful that we don't want as our leader you know yeah and it's just like such a it's such a deep part of your identity is what harry potter has become and so it's Mm -hmm. everyone all of this conversation we've all been having about death of the author i don't think is rooted in much merit i think it's just us trying to find any excuse we can to not have to do the hard thing but, like, obviously, we already made that decision a few weeks ago, and it's become much easier. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah, like, now it's not hard for me at all. I'm just like, yeah, yeah, I don't do Harry Potter anymore. Um, training mm-hmm. myself not to make the jokes and stuff like that. It gets easier. It's just, like, that, like, ripping off that Band-Aid was hard. And we could only do it, I think, because we had just done a Harry Potter episode. And um, yeah. having a week of just reading all of it was so maddening. And yeah. we were so angry. And then, but that was before this this current Twitter storm. So that was just kind of like, we were ready to be like, I can't do this anymore. She just sucks. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to just throw this out there. No judgment to somebody who's not ready to let go of it. Like, I, I get it. But, you know, stop paying for merchandise yeah. that is licensed under Warner Brothers and J.K. Rowling. Yeah. Like, just do whatever you can if you're not willing or if you're not ready to let go of harry potter as a whole but we just do what you can to stop supporting the person who is being hateful we have to stop giving her money we just we have to stop paying her that's the only way capitalists learn yeah like it's the same thing as like you shouldn't be eating at chick-fil-a you know right if you're somebody Mm -hmm, who's saying that where it's like you can't eat at chick-fil-a and love your uh, lgbtqia brothers and sisters same Mm -hmm. you can't give jk rowling any money she is doing what she's doing because she's been taught she can do whatever she wants and Mm -hmm. will still just buy everything she thinks she's queen of the world when really she's just the turf queen luckily gen z is not nearly as uh enamored with harry potter as we are (laughs) no they make fun of us for it they make fun (laughs) of us a lot for it and I'm like, hey, I broke up with Harry Potter last week. Don't make yeah, fun of me. I broke up with Harry Potter before it was cool to I'm, up with yeah, Harry Potter. I did it before I was told. Because um, <laughs> I'm a hipster about <laughs> breaking up with Harry Potter. Which is worse. <laughs> All right. We should probably close out, yeah? Yeah. Sorry. We, we talk about Harry Potter every episode, but it's just kind of I this know. ongoing thing. This is an ongoing, you know, news sensation. Mm-hmm. Queer news sensation. Oh, you have to do a treasure of nice things. I was listening to see if you You know what that sound means. It's time for Catherine's treasure chest of nice things. So last year for Christmas, I uh, made Catherine a very sweet and sentimental gift, knowing that she hates sentiment. And every week on this podcast, we ask her to read one of the nice things I've written about her or 
one of the inside jokes or and i hate it funny musings uh you push me to push myself that's one of the many reasons i love collaborating with you Aww, look, we're collaborating right now. Next, I'm going to push you off a motherfucking bridge. You've been listening to the Queer Pressure Podcast and our critical explorations of queer media as a continued practice of self-love with Katherine Johnson. And Maddie Gray. Hey, you! If you like what you hear, please, please consider subscribing, following, or leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. You have no idea how much it helps a small, self-funded podcast like us to get exposure. You can also follow us on social media. We post memes, new episode announcements, and polls each and every week. If you want to follow us, search for at QueerPressurePC on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Once again, that's QueerPressurePC for podcast. Not for paleontologist cake. Well, thank you for join us, joining us. We had a fun, fun time, didn't we, Cameron? Sure. Goodbye. Okay, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> and as always, fuck the police.